Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's kick off the conversation this morning with Michael Schauer, Market Field Asset Management CEO and Portfolio Manager. Good morning to you, Michael. Better news on the vaccine front over the last month, looking out to 2021. Is there anything between now and year end that could derail the optimism around a better outlook? Um, I don't think so. At least I, I, I hope not. I, you know, having said that, I will say that you know markets are quite stretched at the end of November. Um, you know, particularly you know the cyclical trade, which which we favoured for several months. Um, you know, it's had a it's had a hell of a move. Um, you, know, you know, I've seen plenty of Decembers which have a tricky couple of weeks in the middle of them, and you know that wouldn't be a surprise. But I, you know, I, I think generally. Um, you know what, what I refer to as the doable goods economy is 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 really firing on all cylinders at this point in time. Uh, I think a vaccine would be helpful for that, but I, I don't even think it's necessary. We've had such a massive month through November for international equities, the best month ever on a stock 600. I think the best month on the Nikkei over in Japan since the middle of the 1990s. This came from JP Morgan this morning. We upgrade Eurozone to overweight, reduce the United States to neutral. Relative earnings trends have favoured US over Europe for a while now, but a potential bounce in relative earnings of the Eurozone could be on the cards. Michael, that's just an echo, a flavour of what we've heard so much over the last several weeks around the international stories. It's something you buy into, too. Well, you know, I think analysis does unfortunately often follow performance. So I think people are under tremendous pressure to change their views. But, you know, the point I made a couple of months ago was there's literally so much market cap trapped in the stuff that had been working, you know, U.S. technology as a sort of shorthand for that, that, that any kind of reallocation away from that towards almost anything else is going to have an explosive impact. Uh, you know, we, we would favor Japan over the Eurozone. You know, I, I like what's in the Nikkei. I, I like that part of the world in, you know, in general. But I, you know, but I think that, that you know, you've had four or five years of, of tremendous outperformance by, by U.S. tech against global equities. Um, and I think you've unlocked a little bit of a rebound. Now, you know, the tricky thing going forwards is that if this is a, a true turning point, the sort of turning point you look back in five years' time and say, wow, that really was something that normally implies a problem in the stuff that had been working. Um, you know, certainly, that was the case at the end of the late 90s. Certainly, the case when EM, you know, finished outperforming in, in say 2011. And so, I think the tricky thing, not not obviously for December 2020, but maybe for 2020, 2021, is is you know, if this outperformance continues, does that involve U.S. tech or the popular portions of the U.S. equity market actually going down? There's also a question of whether the pandemic still matters. Does it? It depends what you are. It matters tremendously, I think, for for urban service economies. It doesn't matter a great deal. Um, it may even be having a sort of strange beneficial effect um, for the durable goods economy. Uh, and again, I think uh, you know a, a slightly different question would be if we do have a successful vaccine. And we sort of arrive in the summer of 2021 in a, in a in a better place medically and socially, frankly. You know, does that come at the expense of the doable goods economy, or have we just re, you know have we just ignited a self you know self perpetuating cycle in that part of the global economy? At what point do you take a message from the bond market that really hasn't participated in the rally? The idea that Treasury yields have remained so suppressed despite the optimism that we've seen everywhere else. 
Uh, you know, I think I'd take a partial message from that. Uh, you know, I, I think I do think Fed guidance has something to play. And I, I do also think that, that fixed income is something of a relative value play, that, that it's difficult for U.S. yields to be much higher than they are given where global yields are. But, um, you know, I, I do think that if 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 the sort of cyclical forces do continue, you will have higher U.S. Treasury yields. The U.S. 10-year will find its way to 150 or 175 at some point next year which, you know, would hardly be a shocking level historically. Weaker dollar started to come through. Euro dollar right now, 119.86. The line of the sand for so many of you at home, I know, is 120. The high of the year, 120.11. That was the start of September. We know that's a line in the sand for the ECB because whenever we got to Euro dollar 120, Mr. Philip Lane came out and battered it back down again. Michael Shaw, let's leave it there, shall we? Just a word on the US dollar, if you can. The calls are lining up. It's a consensus view for 21 a weaker dollar. Is that the side of the trade you're on too? Yeah, I think, I think weaker against the cyclically sensitive currencies. I, I think some of the EM currencies can gain a lot against it. Michael Schall of Marketfield. Great to catch up with you, Michael. Michael Schall of Marketfield Asset Management, the CEO and Portfolio Manager. Liz Suzuki joins us now, Bank of America Security Senior Hardlines Retail Analyst. Liz, always great to get you on the show. Are we shopping less or just shopping somewhere else, Liz? Well, I think where people are shopping has certainly changed. There's been this shift to online, and I think some of that has been intentional on the part of the retailers. What we've seen uh, this holiday season especially is the early start to promotional activity, which began, you know, Black Friday sales began as early as November 1st for a lot of retailers. And uh, and the shift has been to promote these, you know, the online channels, um, partly for health and safety reasons to, you know, to avoid overcrowding in the stores, uh, you know, but also because the, the retailers have been seeing demand moving that direction. And so they're, you know, they're not trying to fight against it. So what we've seen uh, a lot of this holiday season in particular, which was relatively new, was the move towards um, p- promoting curbside pickup and buy online pickup in store, which, uh, you know, which, which is, is beneficial to the consumer because they get the product sooner than they would if they went for the ship to home option. And is beneficial for the retailer because they, they avoid having to you know, spend the cost of, uh, of shipping that product to the consumer. So it's kind of it's a win-win situation. Uh, but, you know, in general, we have uh, we've seen a shift in spending also. I mean, this is broader, longer term, which has been uh, towards home categories away from things like, you know, travel and restaurants, obviously, and entertainment. And so those dollars have been shifted into the home. And so we, we think that this holiday season is really going to be about, uh, you know, this, these home categories, comfort yeah. uh, and, and, and all of that. Liz, that takes us to Home Depot, which has had a fantastic year through 2020. For many people, the vaccine is kryptonite for big tech. I wonder what it means for the shopping trends that have really been reinforced through much of 2020, looking ahead to 21. What are your thoughts on that at the moment, Liz? Sure. I mean, I think that for for home improvement retailers like like Home Depot, Lowe's, uh, there has been a big benefit this year from people staying at home and investing in their homes, uh, making those upgrades, you know, putting doing the projects that they had put off for a while. But, you know, as we look beyond this year and into 2021, even post vaccine, you know, one of the big factors that we think is going to be a a driver for next year is the fact that people have moved uh, from urban markets into suburban markets, housing metrics 
place are you know just on fire. And so what that means is there's a, this whole new slew of homeowners that become consumers and become home improvement customers for life, essentially. So you know for the next few years, that will continue to be a benefit. So even though these retailers are up against this difficult comparison in 2021, there are longer term tailwinds that are still at play here, which are really those, you know, those housing metrics that continue to trend positively. I do have to wonder, though, Liz, uh, a lot of people have been home a lot. They can't go on vacation. So they're spending their money on the place where they stay. When they can go on vacation, when they can leave their homes, they will. Everyone who I've talked to, especially if they have small kids, wants to get out. So in other words, how does that challenge the thesis that you just presented? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that there there will be eventually a return, or maybe some. You know, there's pent up demand for uh, you know for getting out of the house, and so at some point people will go back to travel. I think it'll take time though, because comfort won't be you know immediate once there's a vaccine. It's going to take uh, you know several months or quarters until people really feel comfortable um, traveling as they normally would. So for you know for at least the next probably the majority of 2021, there's still going to be this uh, you know this continued time spent in the home and focus on the home. Uh, but, you know, after that, yeah, there there is probably going to be some period of payback or certainly a, a deceleration. You know, the speed of that deceleration will really be contingent upon the speed at which vaccines are distributed widely. Um, you know, so I, I think that there is a, there's, there's risk that growth will decelerate. I don't think it's possible for home improvement spending to continue at this plus 25 to 30% year over year growth base. But I also don't think that that's what's priced into the stocks. I mean, right now these stocks are trading at pretty modest uh, multiples um, relative to their historical rates. So they're not trading at companies that will you know, continue to, to put up 20 to 30% growth year over year. Liz, before we let you go, we talked a lot about companies, retailers pushing people to go to e-commerce. Can you walk me through whether Bed Bath & Beyond have actually sorted out things in store for when things finally reopen properly? I knew this. Get a better experience. <laughs> yes. It's overwhelming in there. There's too much stuff. <laughs> Are they doing something about it? I agree. Yeah. And so they're, they're new, uh, the new CEO or relatively new CEO is the chief merchant at Target. And so, you know, his, the experience that he brings to that role is certainly what the company needed. And, and I think you're right, like the floor to ceiling stuff, you know, pillows that you can't even reach up on the highest possible shelves. It's overwhelming. Right. So I think that they, they're changing the merchandising in a pretty big way. And that's going to be um, a really big part of the turnaround story there. Liz, it's great to catch up. Good to see you. Liz Thank Suzuki you. there of Bank of America Securities. Thanks to say that joining us now is John Riding, Green Capital Chief Economic Advisor. John, great to get you back on the programme, sir. As always, good friend of Bloomberg surveillance over the years, John. The near-term risk, I want to start there. A lot of people factor in this brighter forward outlook and de-emphasising the near term, substantially so, over the last couple of weeks. John, how much gap damage can we do to the outlook over the next couple of months? Well, we could do quite a bit of damage. The, the key thing here is that the income support for the 10 million people or so who have lost their job since February eventually, effectively evaporates mid to late December. It's either six months plus the 13 weeks from when they lost their job or at the end of the year, the 13-week extension program under the CARES Act disappears. And that is about $30 billion a month of household income. And from the macroeconomy perspective, that's not a huge number because of the accumulated savings that has 
gone on through the uh, pandemic period, the excess savings, which totals about 1.5 trillion. But those savings, are not much of the savings are going to be in those distressed households. So those households are going to have to cut back on spending. They're going to be distressed. And uh, and that is uh, something that, that could hit demand. Not to think to the point where we see a negative growth print, um, but could certainly uh, slow growth considerably, which right now we think for the fourth quarter at least is looking about 6% real GDP growth. Let me also say, and, and what's very important is when we get a virus and we can get the 4 million people or so in the leisure, hospitality, travel industry who really can't return to work, and especially with the upswing in the virus uh, infections that we saw through November, those people are going to have to need businesses to go back to. So that's another area. How much damage can we have to the actual employers, to the small businesses that employ many of those people between now and then? So there is real hope over the horizon six months down yeah. the road with the vaccines. But the next few months are going to be, I think, quite difficult. John, I'm so pleased you started with the disparity beneath the aggregate numbers because the aggregate numbers get talked about way too much, a high savings rate. The savings are exactly where we don't want them to be. They're in the hands of the people with a lower marginal propensity to spend. And the people without the savings are the people where we'd like to see the money as things open up because they're likely the ones to go out there and spend it immediately, John. Going forward from here, I think if there's any complacency, it's because people have been experienced, been conditioned by the experience of the last few months where we snapped back so quickly and the recovery in America was much, much better, bigger and better than I expected and many others too, John. And there's a belief that if we go into a small downturn, we'll come out of it the other side just as fast. Is there any reason to believe that wouldn't happen, John? Well, it, as I said, it really matters about are the businesses going to be there to re-employ people. So we do have a very difficult period in markets where we need to work things out. For example, commercial rents. Uh, are, are, what's going to happen? There was a, a report out from the New York City Hospitality Alliance a few weeks ago that said 88 percent of renters, commercial renters in New York City couldn't make full or whole uh, payment of the rent uh, or partial payment of the rent in October. So what's going to happen to those businesses? Is the accumulated rent burden going to be a major obstacle for them reopening? Are they going to throw in the towel, sadly, when uh, the end is uh, very much uh, in sight? We don't know. But that's important. It's not just about demand. It's about businesses to employ those 10 million people who will be ready and able to go back to work once the vaccine is available. John, as you talk, I think about what Catherine Mann of Citigroup was saying last week, which is the, uh, the economy that emerges from COVID will look very different in part because the biggest companies have had the best chance of survival, while the smaller ones have gone out of business at a record pace. And I do wonder, what is the long-term structural economic damage of this entire swath of smaller companies that have gotten wiped out, given the fact that they account for so much of the hiring in the United States and elsewhere? Well, that's an absolutely great point, Lisa, because if you look at the U.S. labor market, about half of people employed work for big businesses and the other half work for small businesses. So we can't have enough expansion in big business activity to employ those people. Small businesses really are a great part of the entrepreneurial uh, side of the U.S. economy. And I have no doubt 
that two, three, four years down the road, whatever the damage is done over the next few months, entrepreneurial America will come back and will come back strongly. But that's a very long time frame for someone who has lost their job and doesn't have that prospect of getting back to uh, immediate employment. So yes, we do have a to use the rather overworked uh, uh, term of uh, ideas from Charles Dickens, A Tale of uh, Two Economies. Uh, we do have the large uh, big tech, uh, large cap economy that's adjusted well through this is in terms of e-commerce and some of the big names have gained business. And then on the other hand, you've got the small businesses, yeah. especially in restaurants, in the hospitality industry, and some of the larger businesses in that area, like airlines, which are really, really struggling. And I think that that's got to be a major priority. If we don't get something done in this lame duck session, and it's a very short lame duck session with an awful lot to do in it, uh, heaven forbid we would have a government shutdown in the midst of all of this. If we don't get that done, that has to be the number one focus alongside virus uh, vaccine distribution uh, for the uh, incoming administration. Hey, John, great to get your view on the programme. Stay well and send my best to the family, won't you? John Riding there of Bring Capital. Thank you, John. Joining us now, if you really want to take a look at this vaccine distribution, the Moderna news really accelerating that time frame. Operation Warp Speed taking a little bit more shape. Dr. Howard Foreman joining Yale University, professor of public health and economics and radiology. What else, Dr. Foreman? Thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with this Operation Warp Speed and where we are based on the application that we're expecting from Moderna, based on what the FDA has signaled. When do you think we will start to get a trip? turn into a flood where we get a real critical mass of people in the United States being inoculated? Look, I, I'm one of the more optimistic people who believe that we're going to see uh, tens of millions of doses starting to be uh, used uh, in January, February. We'll obviously see some at the end of this month, uh, probably at least, you know, uh, several million, but we're going to see tens of millions starting off in January. Uh, and it is not inconceivable that we'll have more uh, doses than demand by the time we get to summer. And that would be a sort of good thing. But then we have to work on the whole issue of vaccine hesitancy. All right, let's let's tease out some of this. Uh, aside from the demand side, when you talk about the supply coming on, Joshua Sharfstein uh, was on earlier this morning and he was saying he's concerned about the number of individuals out there, the infrastructure to deliver the inoculations in a timely manner. Is that something that concerns you as well? It's you know, we, we're all worried about that, but the first tranche of vaccinations are sort of easier for us to do because they're going to be healthcare workers who work within healthcare systems that generally already have an infrastructure and apparatus in place. And they're going to hopefully be nursing homes and, and for vulnerable individuals living in institutions for which we also have uh, an apparatus in place. It's the next step after that that we should all be most concerned about because we really want to get the vulnerable individuals in the community who have suffered so much, uh, the people of color, poorer people, people that, that have to risk their life every day uh, as an essential worker, but not a healthcare worker. And how do we reach them? That's where it starts getting more challenging. Is the issue that people don't have confidence necessarily in a vaccine that's rushed out? Or is the issue that there isn't the medical infrastructure built into some of those areas, this idea of people having a primary care uh, physician or somebody that they regularly contact? 
Look, I think urban areas that have well-developed public health infrastructure are going to be in a much better position to do this. And I think the fact that the federal government has already contracted with, I believe, CVS and Walgreens as part of the distribution plan uh, bodes well for urban areas. I think getting out to rural areas and then, as you point out, this issue of vaccine hesitancy should, should concern everybody. We have witnessed over the last several months um, a schism in this country where some people are adherents of, of good public health practices and some people think that uh, it is a political statement to, um, to basically give up on all those public health practices. We need everybody to want to get this vaccination. Well, how do you combat that? I mean, we've had anti-vaxxers for years. I mean, how do you combat that, especially at a time when there is the perception that this has been rushed through? So I think consistent messaging from leadership all the way on down, it has to be bipartisan. It has to come from the president. It has to come from the vice president. It has to come from all public health officials. It has to come from all state officials. Right now, we know that if we even look among uh, uh, red states, there are some red states where the messaging is excellent. There are some red states where the messaging is not excellent right now. Um, and so we've got to get over that. We've got to get past this sort of partisan divide in our country and get back to a point where everybody is basically messaging consistent evidence and facts and allowing the public to make a good decision, which in this case is about a vaccine that is highly, highly effective and has very, very low rea uh, um, reactogenicity or side effects. How politically fraught is it for big companies to get chunks of doses basically to distribute to their workforce so that they can get back up in business? I'm sure from an economic perspective, it would help people get back into the office and increase productivity. But is that something that could be a politically difficult thing to swallow, especially in the initial phases of the vaccine distribution? So in the initial phases, certainly. But but again, I think that really helps the cause is if employers are able to facilitate this if they too message this in a, a nonpartisan manner, if they're able to a message to their employees that this is something that they're providing to them as a benefit and facilitating it, that can be very, very helpful. All right, going forward, uh, when do you think that we'll reach some sort of full herd immunity? Do you think that that is a time in the near future where we could stop wearing masks and actually get together and hug each other? So Not me and you, I mean just generally. <laughs> oh, look, yeah, right. Um, herd immunity is about me being uh, vaccinated, but protecting people who are not vaccinated. And unfortunately, I think that's going to be a long way off, a lot further off than people uh, realize. And let me just point this out. We don't know whether the Moderna vaccine nor the Pfizer vaccine provides true sterilizing immunity, which is what you need for herd immunity. So herd immunity means that I cannot infect you. What we know about these two vaccines so far is that they definitely protect against moderate and severe infection. Uh, and in, in uh, both cases, I think protect against death. Um, that is huge for the individual. It doesn't mean that we'll achieve herd immunity because it may be the case that half the population that gets vaccinated still gets infected, but they just have no symptoms and therefore they may still be part of the feedstock of continued infection. We need those answers and those, those may not come for several months. Dr. Howard Foreman, thank you so much of being with us of Yale University. Certainly people are putting their hope in the vaccines coming out and putting an end to some of the pandemic that we have seen so far that seems to be accelerating and worsening throughout the United States and around the world.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.